Our first reading is from James chapter 2, beginning at the first verse. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Value Added by Sheila Walker. I'd like to come to your church, she said, but I only have T-shirts and leggings. And I saw in my mind's eye the great crowd of all those who felt judged. Those whose minds were confused, whose children would cry, whose breath smelt, whose heads were tattooed, whose accent and general demeanor betrayed, well, let's face it, that they weren't one of us. And I wept for them because they were outside in the cold. And I wept for us because we were inside in the cold and none of us knew it. It can be tough belonging to the privileged few. I see so little with my nose in the air. I don't see that unique special creation in front of me. Yes, that one with the dreads. Or the fact that I need him every bit as much as he needs me if we're both to come to maturity in Christ. I don't see the patient care, the secret giving, the laughter in the face of pain, 
the hard-won living. I don't see its appreciation that makes rich. It can be tough belonging to the privileged few. I see so much, though not the half of it. Famine, drought, poverty and war. And the more I try to give, the more magazines and appeals find their way to my door. I can't take any more. They tear me apart. The voice that says, give everything, and the voice that says, enough. Go splurge it all on the conservatory. I don't see how to love my neighbour as myself. It can be tough too belonging to the less privileged. I see the need to escape from seeing wealth as the answer to everything. From envy and resentment of the rich. From the chip on my shoulder which puts him on a pedestal only to knock it away. I see the need to balance a form of contentment and a fight for a fairer world. I do not see how to love my enemy. Neither poverty nor wealth is a sign of God's favour. Neither poverty nor wealth a sign of his disfavour. I could be poor because I was born to it, because I chose home over career, because I am a hilarious giver. Or I can be poor because I'm idle, because I'm irresponsible, because I try to keep up with the Joneses. I can be rich because I work hard, because I'm a wise steward, because I do not squander but save. Or I can be rich because I was born to it, because I've traded at others' expense, because I've robbed a bank. None of us at the end of the day is worth more than another, for God values us all equally, and much more than many sparrows. Not that we are all equal, or ever will be, nor ever should be. Value is the name of the game, and we are all of equal value. They say that today we know the price of everything, and everyone, and the value of nothing. Which may be true, when a man in the street can persuade me to sue for an accident seven years ago which left me lame, but was no one's fault but my own. Compensation culture. As if we had rights in the first place. As if we'd forgotten that we will be judged by the standards by which we judge others. Value is the name of the game. It's a shame that value added became one of those meaningless catch-all phrases. Business plans target it, bosses demand it, schools measure it, treasuries tax it, and churches churches forget that we are the ones who should be adding value. Valuing every single person. Growing that gift of making them feel that they are the only one at the moment who matters to us. Discovering and praising their strengths. Covering and praying for their weakness. Listening with interest. Suspending judgment. Giving and receiving. Unearthing the treasure that God has placed in these earthen vessels. Valuing it immensely as he does. And remembering always that the only wealth that will last is free to all.
Jew and Gentile, have and have not. No discrimination on the grounds of race, gender or previous religion. The only wealth that will last. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Who though he was rich with all the glory of heaven. For our sake became poor. To purchase what money could never buy. Free salvation. The great leveller. The second reading continues James 2, from four, verse 14 to verse 26. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without spirit is dead, so, so faith without deeds is dead. By faith we'll walk as you walk with us. What's that phrase actually mean? We've all just sung it. By faith we'll walk as you walk with us. Clearly got little or nothing to do with the physical act of walking as such, because this is something we can do perfectly well without faith, if we're able-bodied. Paul talks about walking by faith, not by sight, which rather conjures up the image of someone setting out on the journey blindfolded almost. And yet that image of being blindfolded does capture something of what it means to walk by faith, because if we walk by faith, it means we don't take our sense of direction or our bearings from what we see around us or from our immediate surroundings. Our sense of direction and purpose, the way in which we live our lives, these things are governed by the faith we have in the God whom we do not see. Suppose you're out walking somewhere and you stop and ask someone for directions. That means you must be a lady, of course, because a man would never do that. And they tell you which way you should go. If you believe and trust them, and you're likely to if you're a lady, the first practical response of faith is to take a step in the direction that they recommend that you walk. You show that you believe them by putting their directions into practice. And the first step you take is a step of faith. I hear what you say. I believe what you say. I'm going to act on what you say. You say I need to go that way. That is the way I am going to go. And when it comes to having faith in God, actually, it's the same thing. I hear what you say. 
I receive it. I believe it. I'm going to act on it. I'm going to put it into practice. I'm going to do something about it. You say, that is how I should be living. That is how I am going to live my life. If you genuinely put your trust in God, the logical outworking of that faith is to live life his way rather than yours. Believing in God will involve a change of direction. Like iron filings move to align themselves with a magnetic field, so we respond to God by faith when we align ourselves with his will for our lives and his purposes for the world. That's repentance. That's a change of direction. That's stopping going my way and starting to go God's way. On the one hand, you believe in God, and on the other hand, that makes no difference to who you are and how you live. In that case, something is wrong, either with the integrity of your faith or the reality of your submission to his will. Faith will involve change. I remember having discussions with friends at school who told me that they were Christians and that they believed in God. It didn't really matter how they lived their lives. There was a total lack of connection between what they said they believed and the lifestyle they adopted. And they said, it's fine, all you have to believe, and that's it. It's precisely that misconception of how faith works that James sets out to challenge in the second chapter of his letter. And he couldn't put it much more starkly, faith without works... It's dead, he says. A life lived in accordance with God's will is a necessary sign of a heart that trusts in God. If a heart that trusts in God does not result in a life that at least sets out to be lived in accordance with God's will, there is something seriously wrong with that profession of faith. You say you believe in the one true God, James asks. Ha! Even the demons do that and shudder with dread at the thought. Faith is not, it's not a, an intellectual matter of believing in the existence of God. Real faith should define our whole existence. Should determine who we are and how we live. Doing God's will is the sign and the seal and the practical outworking of a faith that acknowledges Jesus as, Jesus as Saviour and as Lord. You can't have one without the other. Faith and works, in effect, are, are two sides of the same coin. It's no good saying, James says, that one person has faith and another person has works and both are equally acceptable to God. Look, he says, I'll point to my works as a sign of my faith. You, you say you've got faith. Where's the evidence for it? How can I see that it's real? How do I know that it's there if there are no works, if there's no lifestyle, if there's no obedience, if there's no change of direction? What is really going on? And it's not what you say, it's what you do that really matters. Because without deeds to back them up, words Words just remain empty. In an example that's directly pertinent to the context of poverty in which the recipients of the letter find themselves, James asks, Look, what's the point? What's the value? If you meet someone who's homeless and destitute, saying, oh, God bless you. Keep warm and stay well fed. What good does that do? What difference does it make? What help is that? Actually, it's detrimental. Unless you actually do something practical 
to provide food, clothing, shelter. Your words remain fundamentally empty and ineffective. Saying, keep warm and well fed, makes no difference whatsoever to the person's physical condition. For their situation to change, something needs to be done. And so James says, look, your words without deeds achieve nothing. And that's obvious. But he pushes it a bit further and says it's the same, actually, for faith without deeds. And that perhaps comes slightly nearer home because the reference to faith suggests that what James has to say applies to the words that we use when we pray as well. Words uttered in faith are prayers. What's the point in praying that someone will have food, clothing and shelter if we don't lift a finger to help them? James challenges any temptation to see prayer as a way of salving our conscience. I see a problem, I've prayed about it, it's God's problem now. I can walk away and just just leave it with him. That's not how it works. We're back to that image of iron filings aligning themselves with a magnet. A prayer of faith, a prayer of faith can't leave the one who is praying unchanged either. If I am praying sincerely and genuinely for a person in need, part of that prayer needs to be a genuine reflection on my part. What is God calling me to do about it? And there may be nothing. We may be absolutely helpless. Maybe all we can do is pray. But make no mistake, just just to pray and not to contemplate what can I do about this, that's only half the deal. Prayer will change, possibly, that person's state of mind, possibly their situation. It should change our hearts and our minds when we pray. Bring us into line with God's will, make us Part of the way which God uses to bring his kingdom and to answer, if not our prayers, then the prayers of other people. If that doesn't happen, if our prayer is all about, oh, it's God's business now, then our prayers amount to little more than making us feeling better about someone else's plight. And that is not what prayer is all about. It's not designed to make us better without us having to do anything. And when it comes to discerning what it means in practice to align ourselves with the will of God, there can be no better guiding principle than to adopt what Jesus referred to as the second greatest commandment, namely, love your neighbor as yourself. That has to be at the core of what it means to live as God's people in a world populated by other people, all of whom are our neighbors. Even the Ten Commandments themselves, which we tend to think of as being central to God's plan and purpose, they're actually almost secondary outworkings of the two core commandments, which are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, and your neighbour as yourself. So do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, do not covet. All of these are expressions of what it means to love your neighbour as yourself. And if you love your neighbour as you do yourself, then you will keep those individual laws. And as James points out, it doesn't matter which one of those commandments you break. It doesn't matter at what point you cross the line between right and wrong. Once the line has been crossed, it has been crossed. 
Now, I think sometimes we, we almost interpret James's words in such a way as to make the point that the smallest infringement of the law is enough to land you in serious trouble with God because once the law's been broken in any way at all, you are a lawbreaker. Steal paper clips from the office. You've broken the commandment, do not steal. You're guilty of sin. You deserve to go to hell for eternity because of that. I'm not comfortable, really, with that line of reasoning. I'm not sure that's the thrust of what James wanted to say. His point is not so much that the slightest infraction of the law is enough to secure your condemnation. What he's saying is you can't pick and choose which bits of the law you obey. We are bound by it in its entirety. We are required to love our neighbours as ourselves. That means all of our neighbours, in all the ways that the law prescribes, in a way that affects every part of our lives. Faith is the complete alignment of our lives, who we are and how we live with the purposes of God. The whole law needs keeping. Every bit of it. And we need to hear what James is saying. He was speaking into a situation where he was unhappy about the way in which people in church had practiced discrimination between wealthy and poor people. The wealthy person who turns up in fine clothes and a gold ring and gets the, 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 the best seats in the congregation. And the poor person who says, oh, you can stand there, or there's space on the floor for you there. And that kind of discrimination, that treating people differently, that favoring the rich and the powerful and the wealthy, and treating poor people the way everybody else treated poor people, as if they were insignificant and valueless and worthless, can't happen in the church. Can't happen in God's family. Can't happen in God's kingdom. That means, says James, if if you treat people like that, you're discriminating between different kinds of people and you are breaking the law. Now, you can trawl through the Old Testament and you won't find a commandment that says don't practice discrimination in those precise words. And the point is not that a a specific commandment has been broken, but the principle of loving your neighbour has been infringed. In practising discrimination, the congregations James was writing to were setting themselves up as judges who treated different classes of people in different ways. It is not our place to do that. Jesus said, didn't he? Judge not, lest you be judged yourself. So James says, look, if you practice discrimination, if you pass judgment on others, if you deem to set yourself up above other people, you will be judged yourself that way. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. If you judge, you will be judged. If you do not not show mercy, you will not receive mercy. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who is not merciful, James says. But if you show mercy, you will receive mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. So when we meet people, we are not to categorize them or discriminate against them or draw distinctions between them. We are to treat them with the unconditional mercy of God, which is how God has treated us. Not because we deserve it, not because we're special, not because we have special qualities that qualify us for the kingdom that set us apart from everybody else. No, we are recipients of his mercy and his grace when we don't deserve it. And if that is how God has treated us, that is how we are called to treat others as well.
And we need to be alert to the reality of, of what a powerful temptation it is to look at people we don't recognize in church and gauge the level of welcome we extend with the kind of person that we think that they are. Do they look as if they'll fit in here? Do they have a stack of gifts that they'll bring with them? Can we see them really being useful? Or are they coming with a heap of problems in their train? Do we prefer families to older people? People with plenty of disposable income, are they better than those who are struggling to make ends meet? James rightly warns us against making any distinctions of this sort in terms of the welcome we extend to people who wander into Brighton Road Baptist Church. The problem, of course, in the churches which James was writing was that there were already more than enough poor people. One more person on the breadline was hardly a welcome addition to the church. But, but a wealthy person, few and far between, a wealthy person in our church, what a difference that might make. Well, wealth was an absolute indicator of social status. person, if they had money, was obviously due a great deal of respect and deference. Wealth meant power. Think of how much difference the support of that wealthy person might make to our books, balancing the accounts and the amount that we could use in the service of God's kingdom. Think of how their patronage could really put the church on the map. Think of all the difference it could make to me actually being known personally by someone with that degree of influence and power. Surely they merit all the deference shown to them because of the advantages that we could get from being associated with them. But you can't think that way, says James. You can't draw that kind of distinction. If one kind of deference is shown to a wealthy and powerful and influential person and a poor person is treated with barely disguised contempt, that is offensive to God. Surely God is the only one to whom ultimate, ultimate deference is due because he's the one who holds our lives and his church in his hands. But if you're going to honour God, that means having respect for and showing respect to not just the rich and powerful, but everyone without exception, because everyone without exception is made in the image of God, actually. And it's not that the wealthy person is disrespected, but that the poor person is not treated with any less respect because they're poor. Everybody merits respect. What are the other reasons we might be tempted to discriminate against people because of their colour, their nationality, their sexuality, their social background, their education, their age, their gender? No. God welcomes and accepts us because he is merciful. That's how we know him, that's why we worship him. We are called to welcome and accept people on precisely the same basis, indiscriminate grace, available to everybody. So is a wealthy person better to have in your church than a poor person? Is there value added in having a healthy person in your congregation compared to someone who's unwell? Do we treat British people better than migrants? 
Do we favour a younger person more than an older person? Is someone with a good education better than someone with learning difficulties? We can't sit in judgment on different people and assess how valuable or how important they are or how we're going to treat them on that basis because they are made in the image of God, because they are someone for whom Christ died, because they are a neighbour whom we are called to love as we love ourselves and as we are loved ourselves. And when you look at it this way, there can be no doubt that believing in God is a life-changing step to take. Because it will have an impact on you, your perception of other people, how you relate to them, and has the potential actually to change their lives as well. Real faith. Genuine faith. Faith that's worked out in practice. That's a life-changing step for the person who's had it, who has it. And for the people with whom they come into contact. Because faith is shown by a life lived in obedience to God. And that means loving your neighbour, whoever your neighbour is, as yourself.